I, <laughs> I, I, uh, <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a blessed thing to be a married man, and, <laughs> um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's prepare as we, uh, or let's pray as we prepare to hear the message this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just, uh, help me to speak words that reflect your, your heart and your will, Lord. Help me to, um, accurately and, and, um, properly relate what the text says. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, open the hearts of the folks who are here this morning and help them to, to, um, just be fertile soil for the, the seed of your word to be planted. Um, pray that you would water, uh, water us with the, the, the spirit this morning that, that, uh, you know, good things would grow out of, out of hearing your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, I, several times here in the, whoa, several times here in the last few weeks, I have, uh, I've read articles about, uh, about books, which I don't know what that says about me that I'm reading articles about, you know, about reading books. Um, but, but at the end of the year, um, the booksellers, like major booksellers have put out lists of the top selling books for the year, you know, and the most popular, this, that, and, and, um, I, I've read several articles on the top, um, selling Christian books. And, and it's kind of interesting because if you go through them, um, one of the books is like strictly about about what it means to be Christian, and the others are um, about how to make Christianity make your money work better. And um, I think uh, there's one where the the author writes like this is what Jesus would say if he was talking to me right now, and and it not quite biblical. And I mean, like if you look at it though. The majority of the books um, are all about how to make Christianity work for you and pay off. Um, and, and if you walk, like I was, in a, I was in a bookstore this week and I noticed, you know, the, there's the, the, the Daniel Diet Plan is one of the big popular Christian books right now, which is by Rick Warren, who's a very heavy man selling a diet book. Um, it, it is true. I, <laughs> that would be like me selling a book on how to be handsome. <laughs> you just got to have it naturally. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, I got a finger wag for my wife. I'll get it. Um, <laughs> but but the thing that's interesting about it, and I've been kind of mulling over it, and I think that one of the things that that's happened um, that happens often is we look at things and we say, well, what's this going to do for me? What's the utilitarian element of this? And, and oftentimes, um, this is a, a trap that Christians fall into where they look and they say, well, how is God going to pay off in the end? You know, how is God going to come out and, and do what I need him to do? Um, I, I listened to a debate a few months ago between a televangelist and a, uh, and a, a popular Christian author. And the, the televangelist fella talked about miracles the whole time. And the, the author kept saying, well, what about, can we talk about Jesus? He's like, well, but Jesus is important, but let me tell you about the awesome miracles my ministry is performing. <laughs> well, but what about Jesus? Well, but Jesus is there, but that, you know he's there because of all the miracles I'm performing. And, and it becomes this, like, crazy, you know, about the power or about the, the, the how is it going to make my life better. And I, I want to start with that because we are going to look at, at the part where Lazarus comes to life. It's a miracle we've finally gotten there. Um, and, and, um, there's a tendency and it's, it's what we see. It's like, there's a tendency to get lost in the miracle moment 
and to lose what the miracle is telling us and, and lose like what's being revealed in the miracle. And that's what we're going to look at today. Um, a little background. John wrote this gospel. He was one of the 12 disciples. Um, John, at the tail end of this, we begin to see something that's unique to John because he, um, John was the son of a fisherman who was probably like a fairly well-connected, like the guy was a company owner, right? And so John spent time in Jerusalem, and we get tips that that's the case when you read his accounts of the city and the fact that like at Jesus' trial, John actually like walks in, he knows the guy at the gate, and the guy lets him in. So John is well-to-do. He's got, you know, uh, education and family background and everything else, and, and um, John is able to like give us some insider baseball material because of those connections, um, and it's going to turn up in here. Um, Lazarus is, is mentioned, like Lazarus is the guy who's about to be brought back to life. Everybody got that? Um, Lazarus is mentioned uh, one other time in the Gospels, and that's in Luke. And um, specifically, it's interesting because the story of, of Lazarus and Luke is a parable Jesus tells. And it's probably the case that like folks knew about Lazarus, like that the immediate community had an idea of what was going on. Um, but in the story of Lazarus and Luke, um, Jesus tells about Lazarus being a poor man who dies in the street. And um, there's a rich man who, like, Lazarus dies on his doorstep, and the rich man dies the same night. And, and kind of how things play out where Lazarus goes to heaven and sits with Abraham, right? And, and God attends to him, and the rich man is, is kind of wicked, and he goes to hell. And he begs God, well, let me go back and talk to my brothers. Let me warn people. And, and um, in the end, he says, nope, not doing it. You know, if, if, they don't listen to, if they don't listen to this, if they don't listen to this, if they don't listen to this, they ain't going to listen to you. And we're going to come back to that later in this sermon, okay? So be aware, Lazarus, for whatever reason, Jesus decided to use Lazarus in this story like that Luke relays. Um, and I, I think it's important to recognize the connection, and we'll get there in a minute. Everybody got that? So put that on the shelf in the back of your brain. Um, it's important. Um, as far as the larger text, since we're going to do the whole book of John, um, this is the point in the book of John where John closes off Jesus' earthly ministry, right? This is the seventh miracle he performs in the book of John. John does this intentionally because John is following, like, a Greek literary style, right? And so, like, he, he does, like, major high points in the story that reflect, like, bigger concepts. And so John really writes about seven big miracles, right? Um, we know Jesus performed more than that. I think John even acknowledges it. But in the text, he just touches on these seven. Because the seven, like when she hit seven, for Jewish readers, that would be complete, right? Because seven was the number of completion in Jewish literature. And so, like, the earthly ministry is done. And then after this, John transitions us into the end of Jesus's life. And so from this point forward, we're heading toward Good Friday and Easter, which, by the way, is the next major calendar-like holiday. And so, like, um, we're going to be aiming in that direction starting next week. Everybody with me? Good. Um, and so we're going to look at a bigger chunk of verses, but there's a, a big part of it that we're just going to kind of look at briefly. Um, we're going to come back to that, actually. That's in the wrong spot. Um, so last week we talked about um, um, Jesus, like, getting angry. Right. If you if you didn't if you weren't here, the sermons online at sermon.net. There's this moment uh, slash patching cracks. There's this moment where Jesus becomes angry. He becomes visibly angry, and 
Um, we looked at what that was about. A big part of it was about death, right? Like, because he's seeing all of these mourners, and death never was intended to exist, right? Death came into the world as a result of sin, and the whole world is broken as a result of sin. Like, everything you see that goes wrong, everything that, like, isn't exactly according to God's plan, everything that is that is a mess as a result of sin. And so, like, Jesus looks at this, and he becomes angry because his friend Lazarus is dead, and everybody's mourning and all this other stuff. Like, this is a big part of why Jesus becomes angry. It's like death, right? Um, he then heads for the tomb, and in 38, um, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. So he arrives at the tomb, and he starts to get angry again. And I, I, uh, most of the commentaries I looked at, and, and actually just kind of sifting through it, it looks like he arrives at the tomb, and, and death is the enemy, right? One of the big verses associated with Christ and the resurrection is, Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting, right? Like, because um, the reality is, like, all of us are, are going to die. I know that's tough news. Except Craig, he's pretty old. I don't think he's, he's going to live forever. Um, <laughs> but, but all of us will one day die. Um, and, and we live in a culture that's very removed from that, right? Some of y'all are farmers, so you see it, right? I, uh, I, I was at the Durgas, and I helped them um, kill rabbits, right? I don't think they ate them. They just did it for fun. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They, they eat them. It's not like... I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, so they, they like we're a lot, I mean, farmers are a little less like dissociated, but but it's a reality that you know in our culture, if, if um, somebody passes away, there are, there are professionals that come and get them and deal with them, right? And and a lot of times you go to a funeral, you might see a dead body there, right? But it's relatively unusual for folks to encounter death in our culture. Um, most of the world, and in fact our part of the world, until about 50 or 60 years ago, that wasn't the case. You took care of them, you buried them, right? Or you, you know, helped take care of them with the undertaker and he buried them. But for the matter, most part, people were not that removed. And we're in a very unusual setting because of that, because like, we just don't see it, we don't experience it, we don't like to think about it, we sure as heck don't like to talk about it, right? It, it's removed from us. But Jesus stands at the tomb and he faces the enemy, right? The enemy that, that, that hounds most of the world for most of history and the enemy that we've gotten really good at escaping or pretending we've escaped. We don't actually live forever. Um, was that I had a guy, I was riding home from work one day on my bicycle I, when I was 40 pounds lighter and I was fit and everything else. And he, this guy drove by me, I worked with him. And then the next day I was there and he's like, Walked up to me in the mailroom. He said, Eric, I saw you riding your bike yesterday. Yep. He's like, man, you work really hard to be fit. Yeah. Your heart's probably great. Yeah. You know, you know you're going to die anyway, right? <laughs> There's a chance someone could just run you over and you'll be dead anyway. And I kind of stopped and thought, around, wow, I guess that's pretty rough, man. That's true, though. But, but we don't, you know, I think, well, if I exercise enough, I can live forever. You know, or get an extra couple of years. I won't enjoy them, but... You know, I'll get him. <laughs> um, so he came to the tomb, and he becomes angry. And he becomes angry because he's facing the adversary. He's facing the enemy. He's facing um, the very thing that, is, that has ravaged the creation, that has taken joy and hope out of people's lives, that is sort of the anti-intent. like intent. 
Because the intent was we were designed, you, me, everybody you've ever known, everybody you ever will know, we were designed to enjoy God forever, to be in relationship with him. And the fall broke that. And so Jesus stands there and faces it, and he becomes angry. Um, he came to the tomb, and it, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Um, just a quick like note here, what they would do is they would carve out these tombs, you know, because there wasn't a whole lot of like good ground to dig in because it's all mountains and horrible. Um, and so they cut out these 10 by 10 rooms and they'd put bodies in them and they'd leave them there for two or three years. And then they'd have a guy whose job it was to collect up the bones, parcel them up and put them on a shelf in the same tomb. And then the next guy got buried there. Right. Um, and there was a, a stone that was usually cut into a groove, right? So you'd roll the thing up like a, like a cookie rolling up the, I don't a wheel. A wheel's probably a better example. Like a wheel rolling up a ramp and they'd block it off to open the tomb and, you know, the, <laughs> Sorry, I'm hungry. Um, um, and so, you know, just to give you an idea of what this thing is, they would have, you know, rolled this tomb up and the, the stone up in front of him, several tons worth of rock to block it off so that the body could decompose, you know, away from people. Because for Jews, by the way, if you touched a dead body, you were considered unclean, right? So you wanted to avoid that. And so they would cover it up and they'd paint it white so you didn't accidentally touch the tomb and become unclean just in case. Um, and so he gets there, big stone, he's angry. We're going to go into 39 and 40. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Um, she's being very practical, right? She's saying, do you really want to go in there? <laughs> do you really want to expose us to this? Because and I, I have not been to Israel. I've not been to Palestine. John has. Is it hot there? And, and dead things do worse when it's hot. Everybody got that? Bodies got very ripe very quickly. These guys didn't embalm. They would use spices to sort of knock down the smell because that was the problem. You didn't want to be that close to that nasty odor. But the reality is four days later, human bodies get gross fast. Um, and so the same woman that he had a conversation with about resurrection Remember that? It's like two weeks ago. Um, Jesus talks to Martha. And he's like, hey, your brother will rise again. And she's like, I know. On the last day, he will. And he's like, no, he will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. It's going to happen. She's like, I believe you're the resurrection and the life. But she still didn't get it. Right? She had faith in Jesus. Like, she did. She believed that what he was saying was true. But even then, she didn't connect it with what was about to happen. Right? And there's a pretty good reason for that. In the ancient world, as is today, it's pretty unusual for people to be alive again after being dead for four days, right? I mean, you'll hear about, well, I died on the operating table and they brought me back five minutes later. That does happen. Every once in a while you hear about a misdiagnosis. They threw me in the, you know, I woke up on a morgue slab. I'd been there for about three days. Hey, you know, I'm not dead. Um, but for the most part, like, like, resurrection, bringing people back from the dead was very unusual. Even in the scriptures, before the New Testament, there are only four times when it's recorded, and one of them's not really a guy coming back from the dead. It's a guy talking to someone after he'd been dead for several years. Okay, so like this is unusual. It's very unusual. Nobody expects it. Um, and Martha, who had the best conversation about it, says, hey, he's dead. He stinks. I'm not opening it. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Um, 
this is where this gets to be the sticking point. And this is where we get lost sometimes as Christians. The glory of God is being revealed. Jesus said that in the very beginning of chapter 11, which we did like two months ago. Um, he says, hey, it's okay. Lazarus died because God's going to reveal his glory. Don't worry. He's going to reveal his glory. Um, and what he means by this is God's going to reveal who he is. Okay? Um, it's not like God's going to throw a big party and everybody's going to celebrate and look at how great God is because he doesn't have to do that, right? That's like a lot of women get up in the morning and put on makeup and do their hair nice and everything so they can look pretty. And my wife gets up looking pretty, right? She doesn't have to, she doesn't have to put on a show to be pretty. She's just that way all the time, right? And so like, like for her to reveal her glory is just a smile and, you know, and be awesome the way she is. Um, God is very much the same way, like only, you know, on a different scale, um, because God's glory is just who he is, right? When you look at the things God has done and the things God does in our world, it is natural for God to be glorified, for us to look and say, wow, you are pretty amazing, right? Um, because God's very person is glorious. It is one of his foundational qualities, um, and so when he says you would see God's, see the glory of God, what he's talking about isn't the miracle, right? And it's easy to get lost in that. God will do this for me. This is the miracle. This is this, you know, because we look at our current circumstances and we get lost in them. Isn't it true? Um, I remember a few years ago I broke down and I was out in the snow and I was standing there. I had Abby with me. I had to wrap her up in my coat, and it was blizzarding. And, and we had to walk miles in the ice and snow uphill both ways. And I, but the first thing I did, I popped the hood, and I tried to get the car started, right? And I'm standing there like, God, can't you just help me here? You know, couldn't you send someone by to pick us up? You know, couldn't you just make the stupid car work? And you know what I did? Carried my daughter to the nearest farmhouse is what I did. And we were cold, and it was miserable, and the snow was waist-high in the drifts. I can't believe that actually happens. It doesn't rain here, but you have waist-deep snow. It's not right. I, what? <laughs> um, and so, like, like, there's this expectation in the moment. I look at my circumstances, and I say, God, you should act so I can see something awesome. And in reality, God has done something awesome just by being who he is. And if i got to trudge through the snow, if i got to deal with the difficulty in this life, I, it's important that I back up and recognize this life is not all there is, right? And so as Jesus does this miracle, it's easy to get lost and say, this is all there is. He brought him back. If this life was all there is, Jesus would have brought back every person he ever came across, right? He would have... He would have done nothing but heal. He would never have taught. But the miracles are to point to who God is. And in this instance, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so this miracle is to point to Jesus. It is just to point to Jesus. Um, and it's easy to lose that. But I say that like over and over again because it's, we have to understand that. Um, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. You're going to hit pause. That first line, what does it tell us? This is the first time he's praying about it? No, because he's saying, hey, you heard me already. 
thank you that you heard me already. Jesus came into this having communicated with God at length. And actually, once you get this little bit of a tidbit, you can back up and read the whole chapter again, which we're not going to do today. Don't worry. Um, I told somebody I was going to go to four to see who was really faithful. Um, missed the kickoff. <laughs> anyway, um, if we go back to the beginning, Jesus already knows what's going to happen from the outset of the story when he says, hey, don't worry, Lazarus isn't going to die. Don't worry, this is going to turn out for God's glory. When they get up to go, he's like, hey, Lazarus is asleep. We're going to go wake him up. And they're like, oh, well, if he's asleep, he's fine. He's like, nope, he's dead, guys. He's dead. Pay attention. Um, And so, like, Jesus already knew the whole time. There's a pretty good guess that Jesus has been praying about this for a while, right? And he stands there at the tomb, having prayed thoroughly, right? Not arriving in the moment and saying, God, fix this. Um, I knew that you always hear me. But I, said, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you had sent me. And so Jesus says, listen, God, I know you've heard me. Thank you. But I'm saying this now because these folks need to hear it, right? Why? Because they, he's trying to tell them, hey, if you pray the right way, if you say prayers the right way, if you stand in the right place, you do it the right way, then people will come back to life. No, because Jesus himself is the one who God hears, Right? There's one of the best-selling books is a, a, a book entitled for this year amongst Christian churches is uh, amongst Christian people is the Circle Maker Prayer and it's from the Talmud where this guy drew a circle in the dirt and sat there and prayed that it would rain and it rained and the guy's like well we can use this concept when you talk to God walk around in circles not making it up that's a real book um, but the point isn't hey if you say it the right way if you do the right thing if you do the dance the right way then God will hear you no God hears us because God hears us right. God answers us because he answers us when it's the best for us. God acts according to what's like in the best interest of his people. And ultimately, what's in the best interest of his people isn't that you and I be rich or you and I drive nice cars um, or you and I have hot tubs, just saying. Um, But what's best for us is that we know Jesus, that Jesus is revealed to us in our lives. Um, When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips. Now, what they would do, by the way, when someone would die, they would take like a a 12, 14-foot piece of linen cloth, and they would wrap it around the person head to toe. And then they would take strips of cloth, they tied their feet together, and they tied their arms at their sides. And so Lazarus comes to life, probably rolls off the bench he's been sleeping, you know, dead on, and then kind of shuffles and hops out of the tomb, right? This is different from the way Jesus was resurrected. Anybody know the difference? The, the linens were folded. Yes, God did make us. The linens were folded up and sitting there because when Jesus came to life, he didn't come like just wake up. He came back different, right? He came back not the same as Lazarus. Lazarus was resuscitated. He was brought back to life. Resurrection ultimately will be different. Resurrection will involve us coming back in a different way. Um, but he's all tied up, and Jesus says to them, unbind him and let him go. And so, like, he comes kind of stumbling out, and Jesus says, hey, go untie him. He's, he's alive. Um, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, which seems like sort of an obvious thing, right? Hey, That guy just brought a guy back to life, and they believed in him. 
But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So, like, there's a big chunk of this crowd who were like, wow, a miracle. And the rest of them were like, hey, I'm going to go tell on him. Somebody's got to take care of this guy, right? Uh, Jess, can you slide me back to the Luke verse? Um, Why is this important? It's important because seeing isn't believing, okay? Um, There's a saying on the Internet, pictures or it didn't happen. If you don't show me a picture of it, I don't believe you did it. I don't believe it was there. The reality here is that just because we see something with our eyes, just because something is right in front of us, does not generate real faith, right? Real faith is believing in Jesus, not believing in the miracle. Um, When we read the the other story with Lazarus, um, Abraham replies to the rich man who's saying, hey, let me go back and tell my brothers so that they're not going to end up in hell too. Um, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses, if they do not listen to the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead, right? Um, I think Jesus probably told this story after. Um, If he did it before, it's even funnier, actually. But (laughs) he's telling a story about Lazarus, and he includes this line about, hey, they ain't even going to believe if somebody comes back to life. Like, There's a funny little joke between the two books here, right? Because Lazarus was brought back to life. And some folks saw it, and they didn't believe. And honestly, I would wager that if you look at it, some of the folks who did see it believed in the miracle but didn't believe in Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus is the face of God to us, right? Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. He is what saves us. Um, His death for us on the cross is what makes us clean, makes us able to approach God. Honestly, it's not so I can have my best life now, to cite another popular Christian book. Um, It is not so that I can be thin and healthy like Rick Warren isn't. It's not so that I can have, like, great riches and be happy all the time. Like, it's none of that stuff. Jesus died so that I can look to eternity and realize that I will be made right. I will be made clean and whole and perfect the way God intended me to be. Um but I've got to get through this part to get there. I'm reading, what's the name of the book, Jeremy? The Weight of Glory, the Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. And there's a great bit here. I, I was reading while I was on vacation, and I, uh, I, I came across this, and I was like, wow. Because every one of us will stand before God one day and be judged. There are those of us who will be sent to God, made clean, whole, pure, the way we are intended to be, and it is going to be amazing. And there are those of us who will be under judgment, and that'll suck, right? Um, C.S. Lewis writes, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods in lower G and goddesses lower G. He's not saying people become gods and goddesses. He's saying that one day all of us will be glorified in a way that will be impressive, right? Um, To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror of corruption, um, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Um, What Lewis is saying there is he's saying everybody you encounter on a daily basis, right? The stupid people, the ugly people, the people you find obnoxious, the people you make fun of on the Internet, like with pictures, right? 
all of those people, all of those people, all of those people um, will one day be glorified in front of God through Jesus. Or they'll be like brought low, which is a horrible thing, right? Um, the story of Lazarus is a story of a man getting up and walking after he'd been dead for several days. The real miracle, the real story to tell is the story of Jesus' resurrection and our hope in the future. Um, and that hope, that hope will change everybody you ever knew um, into somebody like you would be tempted to fall down and worship them if you encountered them. The miracle isn't the now, the miracle is the future. As we face difficulty, as we experience hardship, as we struggle and stumble, and sometimes look up and say, God, where are you? Why aren't you fixing this? The reality is God already fixed the worst of it. And we're just going through the motions right now on our way to eternity, on our way to being united with him, and on our way to redemption. It's not the miracle of the now. It's not being thin and beautiful. It's not any of that stuff. It's being right before God. Um, John 11, 47 to 57. We're going to do this quick. It is important, but it would be an extra sermon. Blame Jess. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? By the way, the chief priests and the Pharisees were enemies, right? Nothing, nothing brings folks together like a mutual party to hate. <laughs> it's... <laughs> Um, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Pharisees and the chief priests backed up, and they're like, hey, remember the last time the Romans got mad and slaughtered us? If we let this guy keep going, it's going to happen again. They were more interested in their comfort, in their safety, in their current position than they were in what God really wanted. And so they looked and said, this guy may be doing God's deal, but he's going to mess up our comfortable. Can't have that. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not for the whole nation, or not that the whole nation should perish. Um, Caiaphas prophesies, and he doesn't even know it. He says it's better that one man would die than the nation would perish. Jesus dies, and the nation lives, right? Because those who believe in him are saved and have eternal life. Um, but he's saying, "Hey, let's kill this guy so the Romans don't mess with us." Um, he doesn't even know what he's saying. Um, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly amongst the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is the transition, by the way, because John says, hey, they're going to kill him. And then he says the Passover is coming, which is when the crucifixion happens. And so John is setting up the transition in the book. It's about to become about the death of Jesus. Um, the Jews it was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the, the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know that they might arrest him. And so starting next week, we'll begin on the story of the, the, the Passion. Um, 
which is why we included that. We're going to close with communion today. Um, and the reason we're closing with communion um, is the first week of the month, but it lands well. And here's why it lands well. Because communion is something we do. I'm going to call my guys forward. Um, communion is something we do as a reminder of God. It is also a reminder of Jesus' death, his crucifixion and his resurrection for us. Um, we do this as a reminder of the miracle that took place that saves us. The death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so as we uh, uh, take the, the Lord's Supper today, my encouragement for you today like, is to bring your heart into a place that you recognize this is something we're doing to remember a great thing like our salvation, which is the real, like, amazing, miracle, sign thing, our hope for the future. We don't see it, but we believe it. Um, and so as we pass the cup bread this morning, remember this is, as Jesus said, this is my body broken for you for the remission of sins. Hey, Larry. Or Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs>